Did you know you can get email alerts about every new episode of this podcast? Sign up for free. Just click the link in the show description. If you put aside his tweets and actually focus on the people he hired, he has the most competent team I've ever met in my 30 plus years in Washington. And in terms of the tech people, incredibly brilliant. Continuing, frankly, for the most part, the policies of the Obama administration, they're focused on artificial intelligence, self-driving cars. They're trying to balance out the concerns of privacy. I did not support him, but I'm pretty happy with a lot of the people he's hired and the things he's doing. This is Kotecki on Tech. I am James Kotecki. My guest today is Gary Shapiro, president and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, also the author of the best-selling book, Ninja Future, Secrets to Success in the New World of Innovation. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks, James, for having me. I'm really excited to be uh, talking to you. I want to start with some context for everybody. CTA is a trade association based in the D.C. area that advocates for technology companies and innovation, and it also puts on CES, which is maybe what it's better known for, the gigantic tech trade show that happens every year in Las Vegas. It always makes a lot of news. It's drones, it's robots, it's artificial intelligence. And you use a phrase in the book, uh, every company is a tech company. And as the host of a podcast called Kotecki on Tech, I agree with you, but I'm wondering at what point does the term tech, if it is all of those things, get so broad and so kind of sprawling that it loses its meaning? Because if a company that builds social networks and a company that builds tractors and a company that makes meatless hamburgers, if all these are tech companies, then what are we actually talking about? That's a great question, and we have that discussion internally all the time. I don't really sweat it out because companies self-define themselves. I know a lot of companies want to be tech companies. Innovation and technology go hand in hand. Uh, it seems the pace of innovation is accelerating. Companies have to pay attention to it. But I'd say most companies now self-define as tech companies, which is something I've been advocating. So I feel like in the long run, it's a good thing because technology changes and transforms companies so quickly and allows them to essentially beat out their competitors. And if they don't do it, they're standing still, and that means they get left behind by others that do it, whether it's new entrants or more paranoid or future-looking uh, existing competitors. So self-defining as a tech company is also just a way of saying, I want to be innovative, I want to push the envelope, I don't want to stand still. It's saying that I, I am paranoid and I know there's a better way of doing things. And if I don't figure it out, someone else will. And, and me and my employees will be out of business and they'll be looking for jobs. But there's so many rapid areas of, of, of development, whether it's smart cities and self-driving vehicles or connected cars or remote patient monitoring or robotics, uh, AR, VR. There's all these things happening like almost at the same time. The, the pace of change is logarithmic. Every company being a tech company, that means they're excited about the future. That means they have at least a good shot at surviving. You talk about so many different threads of technology in the book, but I know that the focus for you as a trade association, a lot of what you think about is the policy, the framework within which innovation happens in the United States and around the world. And in the book, you write that Europe uh, has tech regulations that are perhaps too restrictive. And in places like China, it's the opposite. It's kind of the Wild West. But the U.S. is kind of in this middle ground where it gets the balance right. And in fact, you say, there's a quote I like in the book, you say, pro-innovation policies are America's secret sauce. But bedrock 
political assumptions about what the United States will do are probably much less reliable. Things seem to be kind of seismically changing on a political front. Do you think America is going to continue with this kind of regulatory balance the way that you've seen it uh, be beneficial? Our government actually under, you know, President Obama was very pro-tech. He wasn't great for business environment. President Trump's the exact opposite. He's pretty good for business. He's not great for tech. Uh, and he's not good in some other ways. But um, I, the focus today is on privacy and artificial intelligence. Europe's definitely uh, not been good for innovation. They have so many freaking rules. It's hard to start a business there. You can't transfer employees. It's just it's discouraging of new businesses, and they realize it. And there are countries like France and the Netherlands, which are trying to do different. But China has a really interesting and different approach. They are focused on producing a million engineers a year. They believe in some important technologies. They've hit it right. Artificial intelligence is important. The government has no privacy restrictions. And, and where data is, is the basically what counts in artificial intelligence, um, they have a great strategy. Uh, you know, yeah. and they're doing a lot of things very quickly. It's it's really diminishes the individual and privacy. And, you know, everyone in China will have a social rating within the next year or two. And it affects where, where you can travel, um, your dating, how you do on dating apps, all sorts of things based on who your friends are, what you do on social media, whether you jaywalk, whether you're paying your debts. It's pretty scary. So my point is the U.S. has has been right in between. We're Goldilocks and the three bears and we our porridge is just right now. There's a lot of temptation to go the European approach. Not, not a good, good way. And, and, but we do, I was in a meeting recently, um, in the Hague with the leaders of the, of the Dutch government, the prime minister, and also a couple of our uh, cabinet secretaries. And I made the point that we have a lot more in common with Europe in terms of our focus on the individual and our values, our value of liberty, of choice in voting, of choice in religion, of freedom of access to the internet, of freedom of speech. And that's where we have a common culture with Europe. And we're gonna be up against the Chinese culture which is the exact opposite of all those. This is not just about technology or innovation anymore. This is about culture and a way of life. So we have to recognize that Europe has a different view, but we're allied in our, in our fundamental principles of respect for the individual. And we have to balance that respect for the individual and privacy versus the importance of innovation and that fact we are in a global battle as to who will do best uh, with all these technologies that are coming down the pike so clearly and so quickly. And it is a battle over so many of them. I mean, this idea of East versus West and this culture clash is an interesting one. And I want to dive in maybe one level deeper on this. If you look specifically at what AI and machine learning require to be successful, and you know this well, it is data. You have to collect a lot of data and use a lot of data. And we're talking about if China or countries like it are able to throw privacy kind of constraints out the window and just collect a ton of data on their citizens, then from a simply technical perspective, that could actually be very useful in training AI and machine learning models. Do you think it's possible that the kind of classical Western liberal with a lowercase l ideals of individualism and privacy are colliding with technology realities of what is actually required to build the future? I think that's a very thoughtful summary and question. And there is a, there is a somewhat of a collision, but it's overstated. Uh, I was in Montreal in December attending a G7 summit on artificial intelligence. And honestly, except for the U.S., every other country's government officials were talking about anything in AI must be uh, transparent. Every um, algorithm must be disclosed. 
every it cannot have a disparate impact on any any protected group. It must the guy from France really blew me away. He said uh, the minister every uh, citizen must benefit immediately. A hundred percent of the citizens from anything in artificial intelligence. Wow. And I got up at the end of the day and I spoke and I said, do you understand that this is a global economic battle with China and all you're doing is talking about the negatives about how you can restrict artificial intelligence, not all the benefits. Most of it will in, not only enhance our lives, it will save our lives, allow us to live longer and healthier, allow us mobility and transportation, empower elderly people and disabled people. It will fundamentally change our lives and, uh, and avoid a lot of the problems we face today with health care and transportation and agricultural production and clean water and clean air and malnutrition. We are on the verge of an amazing revolution and we don't want to screw it up and we don't want to cede it to the Chinese. I think there's a balance that we could look at and that mm -hmm. is let's make it situational. There are times when we, privacy is paramount and there's times when it's not. The uh, Trump administration, with the support, believe it or not, of Obama administration officials, has totally shifted electronic medical records, called them a failure, and said, this is something you really you're entitled to take around on your own. And if you're willing to give up your electronic medical records in a, you know, a anonymized way for the greater good about what actually works, then we'll have real cures at work much quicker, and we won't be wasting a lot of time on medicine that shouldn't be given to us because it just simply doesn't work. There's a couple of different threads with uh, President Trump and his administration. One is this feeling that it's all about bringing back manufacturing jobs, bringing back coal jobs, making America great again, implying kind of a return to the past rather than looking to the future, which makes me think that Donald Trump and his administration would be generally kind of against some of the ideals that you're uh, institution is advocating. However, he's also the person who is unquestionably the Twitter user in chief. He was tweeting at one point about having 6G internet, which isn't a thing, but you know it could be a sign that he cares about advancing the ball forward in some of these innovative areas. So what's the reality of dealing with the Trump administration when it comes to innovation and technology? You know, the reality of dealing with the Trump administration, if you put aside his tweets and actually focus on the people he hired, he has the most competent team I've ever met in my 30 plus years in Washington. Uh, every ambassador I've met is more qualified than the prior ones I met. They speak the language, they have connections with the country, they're, they're super qualified people. And in terms of the tech people, oh my gosh, incredibly brilliant, smart, Continuing, frankly, for the most part, the policies of the Obama administration, they're focused on artificial intelligence, self-driving cars. Uh, they're trying to balance out the concerns of privacy. They are focused on the competitiveness of the U.S. These are these are concerns that, that China and Bush and, and Clinton administrations had as well. But they are definitely more aggressive on, on China, and that's being led certainly by President Trump. Michael Kratzios, who is designated to be the, uh, the head of technology for the whole administration and is already in the technology office in the White House, he comes from the VC world. He is he's like he knows tech forward and backwards. He's focused on all the big issues. Ajit Pai, who heads the FCC, um, brilliant guy. You know, he's gotten a lot of beating up on net neutrality, which to me is the most biggest non-issue in the world. I mean, it's been over a year and, you know, the Internet's still doing fine. Ivanka Trump, one of the most impressive people I've spent time with, uh, she is focused on three issues, major importance to the, our future, the role of women globally, uh, the role of entrepreneurs. I was, uh, She was just in in Netherlands helping head the, our presence at the um, Global Entrepreneur Summit. And th the third thing that we're really focused on is reskilling. Um, she said, look, tech industry, you're out there. You're going to displace a lot of people. No question about it. Self-driving cars, artificial intelligence, every area. 
what are you going to do to help those American workers you're displacing? And she basically said, the government's not going to do this. We don't have the money or the skill to do that. What are you going to do? And she got several million uh, jobs committed from our industry. And she has over 10 million, I think at this point, generally from uh, industries to say, we're going forward. And in the next five years, we will train and reskill people. Uh, we're focused on apprenticeship. She's focused on that as well. Uh, Seema Verma, the CMS administrator, that's the the one that does the healthcare in America. Again, working with the uh, Obama administration officials, they're totally aligned. She's smart, aggressive. She's focused on health care. And in Congress, we have a lot of uh, good Republicans and Dem Democrats uh, working in a bipartisan way. I mean, Congress has done a lot of really good things. And all you hear about is the bad things um, that they fight over that are very political partisan issues. So, you know, do I love President Trump and, and wish he did never discovered Twitter? I can honestly say I don't. I did not support him. But I, I have been pleasantly surprised once you get past the posturing and the, you know, how he represents our country. Uh, I, I'm pretty happy with a lot of the people he's hired and the things he's doing. So that's very heartening to hear as somebody uh, who, you know, reads the news all the time. I'm not getting almost any of the narrative that you just portrayed. Do you see any kind of shift there where people are going to catch up to the realization that you just laid out? I don't know. It's something I can't change. I try to get just focus on the facts and, and see how the bias is creeping in on both sides. And it's it's not something I support. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. Uh, I wish there was more independence out there. And uh, we try to support those that focus on technology and innovation. Those are the ones that I like. That's what's important to me. So we support politicians on both sides. We have a political action committee and we we find good people on both sides. One thing that kind of has united in a weird way portions of the left and portions of the right is a concept you write about in the book, the tech lash, which is the public backlash to technology companies. On the left, you hear this from some presidential candidates about breaking up big tech companies. Can some conservatives, some conservatives are saying that some of these platforms may be biased against them. You know, up until the last couple of years, the narrative really was being shaped more by the tech industry, which was you know, our innovation is making the world better. And that certainly seems like a narrative that, you know, CTA would probably want to promote as well. But given the current political reality, given the divisions, given the way that tech is being viewed now from both sides, can tech get back to that kind of, we're just making the world better through innovation narrative? Or do they need to craft, do companies need to craft a new narrative to match the current political moment? Is there a mismatch there? Um, it was a good run. Uh, I was concerned it was going to end and it did. I don't know what we could have done differently. I mean, the truth is we at our association, we have over 2000 American companies as members. And only when you talk about the tech last, you're really talking about three or four companies at most. And so have they done some things they shouldn't have? Yes. Uh, they definitely pushed the envelope, but that's what innovation does. I'm not aware of any tech company that doesn't think the government has a role. And the government's role, I think, is to help set the guardrails uh, and debate what's acceptable and what's not. And But I think every company, tech company or not, has the right to know what is legal and what is not. You know, I think using novel antitrust theories so that government lawyers can create 
careers and names for themselves is not a good approach. And this isn't new in a sense. I mean, look, the government went after IBM, they went after Microsoft, after Qualcomm, Intel, they went after all these companies and mostly they never find anything. But what they do is that's catnip for the Europeans to use their incredibly ambiguous antitrust laws to impose, you know, multi-billion euro or dollar fines on these great American companies, extort their money because they can't innovate very well and, or create any of these companies. But they're American companies and we should be defending them. And it hurts me the fact that we're not. We're, we're so mean to our own, if you will. There's definitely some feeling in the conservative community that there is a bias in there. I understand that. Sometimes the tech companies have caused it. The, some of the platforms, sometimes they haven't. It's just misstated. Some of this is fueled by the reality that we're in a new environment. Some of it is fueled by... Uh, resentment from old status quo industries that have, have, have felt that they've seen their rice bowl taken away. And some of these things are just like a, a fear of the unknown and, and, you know, you have to attack somebody. But I, I guess I don't lose that much sleep over it because I think the good the tech can do is so enormous in terms of energy and healthcare and communications and transportation that people will be so seduced by the the benefits that they're willing to say, look, that's who we are as a country. We adopt new things. If we want to stop tech in its track, it would be a really bad national strategy. What scares me is big, broad general rules, which will choke off innovation, inhibit tech companies. And frankly, to be perfectly honest, 80% of our companies are smaller companies. My fear is that any regulation, almost any big company can deal with it. They have the legions of lawyers. They have the pocketbook. What we don't want to do is choke off innovation, to choke off startups and new new companies that could come in. And we've been pretty good at doing that. It's just in the last few years, some of the bigger companies um, have gotten pretty dominant. Um, Amazon's gotten very strong. But, you know, we've all survived as a country. And the other thing is, is a lot of Americans are shareholders in these companies. They may not know it because it may be in their 401k and mutual funds, but that's a big part of our stock market valuation today. The tech lash isn't healthy, but in the scheme of things, it's something we'll just have to deal with. I want to end, Gary, on a specific and positive note. So of all the technologies that you think about, that you write about in the book, that we see every year at CES, what is an emerging technology or idea that you think most people aren't aware of that is potentially being undervalued, but that could have big ramifications for the future? Well, I don't think most people really understand artificial intelligence. I mean, certainly those in the tech world see the, the, the economic value, whether it's keeping us safe while driving or solving um, treatment of disease or dealing with safety around us in the world. And then you combine that with robotics uh, which rapid advances is more uh, electromechanical. Um, there's a lot of the dangerous jobs will be eliminated. And also, frankly, our lives will be prolonged as we get, uh, you know, body parts between artificial intelligence and robotics uh, that allow us to, to survive longer. So, I mean, I'll leave you on a, I don't know if it's a happy note or a scary note, but the fact is, is over 95% of the species on earth have become extinct. And the odds are pretty high now that humans may not make it, which would be a shame considering all the great things we've produced uh, if there's other life forms out there. Um, you know, between global warming and climate change and disease and nuclear proliferation and things like that, our, our future is, is in the next thousand years is not that certain. But if we allow innovation to proceed forward and artificial intelligence to the, the point we could meet or exceed the human brain, then we could download the brain, we could combine it with robotics, and frankly, a lot of healthcare issues, a lot of things like that will go away and we will survive, maybe immortally. I don't know. Um, 
That's not my goal, but I think the human race will survive one way or the other. If we do have one of these emotionally conscious robots of the future, it will absolutely be at a future CES, which is led by Gary Shapiro, who's the president and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association and the author of the best-selling book, Ninja Future, which is also available on Audible, by the way. Gary, you read that book, and that's how I was uh, enjoying the book. So thank you very much for doing that, and thank you for being on Kotecki on Tech. Thank you so much, James. It was, it was a delight.